The End Written by Adam M. Booth Narrated by Shiromi Arserio Chapter 1 This is where the end begins. Here, in the fluorescence of a supermarket petrol station, on the fifth day of a bad week. I could not imagine a more mundane place for a story to start. But it is always from here that I choose to begin. I don't know why. Perhaps I find comfort in the illusion of safety, its buzzing brightness cast about. Perhaps it's just through honour, for the last few moments of a shared humanity. Either way, in my mind, this is where it begins. I stood caffeinated and fidgety in a queue of nine, swollen feet tight in high stilettos. Outside, a pink sun was setting and the busy door battered cold air against hot. As people who just wanted to go home grabbed beers and milk and bread. Racks of magazines sold cakes and cars and bras to the side of my face, and it was okay. Because we all needed to eat. And we all needed to dream. Time hung in the air, and anxiety itched in my veins. I wanted to get out. I wanted to get going. But I wish now that I'd savoured my time there a little more. I wish I'd reveled in the normality for a while longer, but I could not have foreseen the sharp, neck-cracking left turn life was about to take. Indeed, knowing what was just around that obtuse corner would have only banished me from my blissful ignorance sooner. Now I look back at this tiny beaten time with reverence, not because it was unusual, but simply because it was so usual. More queuing. I stood now, fifth in line, my right arm weighed down by a wheeled basket filled with boxes of frozen brown things I'd never eat, and the radio played a pop song about love and fame and need, and I hummed along and sagged with exhaustion. Two days would not be enough. My bones needed more. But I knew that come Monday all those boxes would need to be ticked again and my many debts recompensed. So life's relentless march forged me onwards. For a moment I felt trapped by circumstance. It gripped my heart and stole my breath. It was a feeling I'd come to know intimately. To distract myself from the vice of responsibility in this eternal cue, I focused on her, a glint of light in the pitch. Beautiful, distant, Lucy. I see her in my mind's eye, as all the versions of her I've known. She is newborn and infant and adolescent all at once. I can't make a distinction between these shades of her because she is all things to me. She is in the tick-tock of my watch and in the moisture on my tongue. 
She is stars and sea and breath and blood, but at this point in time more than anything else, she exists as a space in my life, absent as she is from it whilst at school in the countryside. I would try not to think that she chose to go there to avoid her remaining broken parent, but I would never be successful. I hate myself for so many things, but none more than the pain I caused her. It wasn't meant to hurt. Quite the opposite. It was all for love. And still we cued. The man before me lurched two steps toward the checkout as a middle-aged lady shuffled down the line towards the sliding doors, dropping change into her purse. Her hands shook madly with the signs of what I assumed to be the early onset of some crippling, degenerative disease. The one holding the purse was freshly bandaged. She was ashen grey. I took a step forward into the space left by the man in front, and my arm dragged behind me, pulling the wheeled basket of artificial flavours, textured proteins and modified starches, past a two-metre-tall cardboard cutout advert for crisps. It showed a sun in a blue sky setting over a field. There was a farmhouse on the horizon. My mind fell backwards through time. France in late August. Lucy rolling in long grass. The three of us feeding a horse over a fence. Thick blood being coughed into a tissue. Clouds obscuring the sun. The radio broke in, ending a story with the words, against girls nine to 17, before cutting to loud static. The cashier said, next, without feeling, and lifted up the small radio, turning it over and around in hoary hands. It just crackled and spat. There was nothing she could do to make it sing again, so she killed the power at the wall. I approached the till, chipped, pinned, then left for the forecourt. Outside I saw the curved blade of the red sun dip behind a spine of dead trees. They ate away at the fire in the sky as it turned away from us one last time, leaving only the ultra-bright petrol station and an encroaching absence of light. I loaded up the 4 by 4 got in, and accelerated down the road away from the shrinking pool of light in my rear-view mirror. The sat-nav sprang to life, directing me towards her, down that tarmac, down the back of that greasy black python, away from my life and towards the warm embrace of my own genes made flesh, to her company, her conversation, and eventually, perhaps, some rest. How I longed for it. How I longed to be with her. Safe in our space. Quietly within each other with only the hum of the fridge and the sound of her breathing and scratching and living. Into the dark I drove. I drove for hours and hours until the last coffee had all but left me and fatigue hung heavy round my shoulders. For years I had existed in that narrow, edgy space where caffeine clashed against fatigue. You know the place. It's 4.17pm on a Tuesday in January. It's already dark outside and rain streaks the world into lines. 
you breathe the sour tang of hours-old Colombian roast and burnt milk onto a stained keyboard you're punching too hard with dithering digits. The muscles in your back bunch into bricks and they hurt. Damn it, they hurt. But it doesn't matter. All that matters are numbers on a page. Those numbers on that page. The phone is ringing and the people on the other end of it hate you. Don't look back, Zoe. Just drink more coffee. Just drink more coffee. I put on the radio to stimulate my brain into something resembling alertness. Radio 1 was nothing but infinite static, just like it had been in the petrol station back there. With an absent mind, I padded and probed through my little brown bag, looking for my iPod. Distracted by minutiae, I didn't consider what that static might mean. I didn't imagine that maybe somewhere the end had begun. I tuned through the rest of the stations and got nothing but the same. So I pulled over to the side of the road of the silent small town I was passing through and plugged in the iPod I retrieved from the bottom of that leather bag of detritus. Somewhere, a siren sounded. I scrolled through my music collection hit shuffle, and sped off. Her music had been on my laptop. Two lives lived through overlapping eras, twisted together and told through music. Played at random, they told a story of the truth in us. Our desires and secrets confessed in song by other voices. A stranger sang about blue skies and Saturdays into the intimate, vibrating darkness of my beastly car. I didn't know the words, and the sentiment felt like a taunt. As our music played, I raced down that open tarmac, road markings pulsing in my lonely light, like arteries pumping faster and faster as darkness chased me into itself. A pair of red eyes grew quickly out of the ink, I slowed for the traffic light staring me down and the heartbeat of the road held still as if in anticipation of the scene about to be played out before me. My headlights lit the stage. A man was face down on the pavement at the other side of the four-lane carriageway. He was dragging himself along by his hands. Even from this distance I could tell he was injured. His blonde hair was slick and glinted ruby in the cold halogen light. My hand found the door and held it closed. His mouth twisted open as if he was calling out in slurred pain. But I heard nothing through the aspartame pop song and deadening insulation of the car. It was duty, not instinct, that instructed me to call for help, and I dialed 999 with suddenly shaking fingers and thumbs. The hands-free cut out the music, and I told the automated voice on the other end of the phone that I thought I needed an ambulance. I was transferred to an operator, my eyes flitting between the injured man and my dashboard. I tried not to see his face. The line clicked as it connected, but instead of the efficient, concerned greeting I expected, all that arrived was an ambient sound, like a faint wind. Hello? No response just the movement of air. Hello? I said again, shouting slightly this time. Now only silence. 
I listened hard. <laughs> Gurgled a low tone. I shuddered as the noise exhaled down the line, filling the car. Unnerved, but mostly just annoyed, I hung up and started to call back. But before I could dial the number, I noticed the light catch a small group of people approaching the obviously injured man. A group of around nine. I saw and heard him scream once loudly before I disconnected and allowed the music to start up again, erasing his pain from my ears. They approached, bent over, forming a messy circle around him. Arms outstretched, they appeared to slowly but deliberately administer first aid. My mind made quick assumptions. All nine people must surely have mobile phones. One of them would no doubt eventually get through to an operator who took their job seriously enough to actually take the call. There was nothing a tenth person could do to help. And so there, in the greedy excess of my unnecessarily large vehicle, I made a selfish decision that allowed me to live an extra 90 minutes. The lights turned amber, then green, and I turned left and drove off into the distance. The crowd of helping hands taking care of the injured man still visible in the rear-view mirror as I ran away into the night. That would be the last time I would see another human being and not try to eat the brain out of their skull. Chapter 2 It was 7.30pm on a Friday night in late October that I was driving in the dark to collect my daughter from a remote train station and bring her home from boarding school for the only weekend of the month that brought me any solace. Driving through that final night, singing along to the last music that would ever play, I had no idea that what I wanted what I expected out of that day and the rest of my life would be replaced so soon and so finally with cracked bone, smeared gore, and eternal death. I arrived at the train station and was glad to see that the car park was quiet for a Friday evening. The lights inside shone out through the plate glass windows and separated the dark night from the harsh blue waiting area within. The air was still and cold, and I could hear a slow, rhythmic click from some complicated piece of train equipment, the name and function of which eluded me and would continue to do so. I jumped out of the car with purpose and walked a quick pace towards the station building. The sharp heels of my stiletto shoes clicked and pecked at the gum-stained paving as I half ran, half skipped toward the future. Double automatic doors slid open in a breathless yawn. I walked towards them and let them swallow me whole. I stopped for a moment as the doors closed behind me, letting the relative heat of the foyer permeate my flimsy clothes. I was still wearing the outfit I had worn to work that day, a cream button-up shirt, open at the top, and a knee-length figure-hugging beige skirt with the aforementioned heels and a pair of sheer tights. I was well aware that this was not appropriate autumn-winter workwear, but Steve had been visiting from head office, and I very much wanted him to want to have sex with me. 
I doubt I would ever have gone through with it. But he had big arms, dark stubble and a knowing look that set alight a chemical reaction deep down inside me. Down there where our bodies can't hide their secrets. I looked back towards the doors I had entered through, remembering that I had left the warm jacket I had brought for the journey in the back of the car. A version of me looked back from the smooth, even glass. She was washed out in the pale blue light, but looked trim and taut. Her breasts continued to defy gravity, sitting front and centre on her chest, just like the magazine said they ought to. The dark, glossy hair I had dyed and dragged back tight into a ponytail helped old, tired eyes look bright, despite feeling anything but. Despite my best efforts, life had carved its stories into my face. I hated the way they exposed me. I had applied all the petrochemicals they said I should. But those bastard lines still gave me away. I pictured Steve bearing down. Me, the woman in the glass, bent over the edge of my desk, skirt hitched up. Him, running a rough hand over the stretch marks she gave me, then past the scars on my inner thigh, where their jean studs had torn my soft teenage skin. But don't worry, familiar guilt bled into my mind soon enough, tainting the image. Like a haemophiliac, I could never stem its flow for long. I walked out onto the platform, which was without anyone else. I was only peripherally aware of the people on the other side of the track, huddled behind the glass wall and the warmth of the café. The yellow dotted sign above me informed me that the train was due in at 8.45pm. It was now 9.03pm and I was cold, and the sign was a liar. I went back inside to talk to the information desk to find out what the hold-up was, only to find it unmanned. So I returned to the platform and sank sulkily against the hard, uncomfortable, arse-high shelving that now seemed to pass as seating in public transportation stations throughout the land. Its metal curve felt cold against my thighs, and I shivered as my heat left me. Across the track I noticed more bodies arrive and join the figures behind the glass, forming a small crowd. One of them raised a hand and seemed to give me a slow wave. I smiled thinly at this rare train station camaraderie and gave an awkward half-wave back. The waving person, who looked to be wearing a torn t-shirt, dropped his hand, but still stared squarely in my direction, his head cocked to one side. Blushing slightly from the attention, I turned away and propped myself against the wall of the platform. My mind meandered from Steve's thick forearms and well-fitting suit to the inappropriateness of a torn t-shirt in October, before finally settling on Lucy and her extreme lateness. And in between, I saw blood. All the blood. My mind flickers like a slideshow. It's always been that way. At 9.10pm, I decided I'd try to call her to find out where she was, so I lifted my phone, only to see that I had a voicemail from my mum. The voicemail introduced her message to me. It was from 7.45pm. Zoe, can you hear me? She was breathless and hearing it made my heart seize, her panic a contagion that infected me through the phone line. 
There are people in the house, Zoe. They were on the lawn. They looked hurt, so I went out to see them, but... She whispered to me with an intimate urgency I hadn't heard from her since. She'd loved me so purely as a child that it was as though she had been made out of light. Diffused light. The best kind of light. The kind that finds its way to you through leaves. Sunlight through blonde hair and an embrace of pink musk. Fixed knees. Days with paint. But nothing stays perfect forever. Life will see to that. A clawed face. A kicked bin. A white knuckle trembling in the dark. He fixed his stare into the distance and took the best parts of her away with him, discarding them like they were rubbish. Like we were rubbish. He threw us away into that pit of his, that endless, lightless pit of loss where he thought we'd never find him, or her, or them, or us. But I would find him. I did find him. And I only did what I had to do. A slow thudding emerged beneath her words. She heard it too, and for a few seconds, all there was was the thud and her increasingly laboured breathing. The young man bit me, the one with the jeans and the dark hair, on my shoulder. Do you think I should... Her voice came as if spoken through treacle. I don't know why I... Three thick, short breaths. Zoe, your dad, she conspired, finally. I heard her breathe in one last time. The message went on, but all that could be heard was the thudding which grew louder then paused for a long moment before fading again into the perceived distance. I blinked hard against the shadowing that crept in at the sides of my vision. My ears thrummed as my body tried to fix this sudden and complete mental anguish by flooding my system with a cocktail of hormones that made me shake and thump. All I had ever wanted was to protect her. The biggest gift I could have been given in that moment was oblivion, but in what I wish I could say was a final act of cruelty, my body kept me alert, clearing the encroaching ink and bringing my hearing back to full clarity just in time for me to become aware of a distant squeal that grew and grew and grew before adding a deep and increasing rumble to its suddenly terrible chorus. My eyes focused down the track in the direction of the noise which was now not over there but all around me. My gaze followed the burning train as it tore into the station, tilted to the left, grinding metal against concrete as fire spilled out of broken windows. Orange flecks through a smoking metal hurricane. I spun on my spiked heels and watched the world end as the train crashed and twisted into the bend where the track exited the station, before becoming obscured by its own black emissions and an acrid smell of fused brakes and burning plastic. My reality became replaced by a smudged abstraction. Through the black smoke, 
I made out a shade of a man in a torn T-shirt on the same platform as me. The incinerating train threw sparks into the blackness and illuminated the approaching figure. I saw him stretch out his arms towards me as he seemed to walk in slow motion through the surreal world I had been suddenly born into. A flash illuminated his face, and he was smiling. Relief weakened me, and I dropped to my knees and held my arms aloft to receive him. Chapter 3 My mind has erased almost all of the time between my prostration at the feet of my shadowed saviour and the time I regained my consciousness but found I had lost everything else. Only a few memories remain. I would say mercifully so, but there is nothing merciful about the parts I remember, the first being the moment I looked up at the face of my smiling rescuer, only to see that he wasn't smiling at all. Rather, the tissue of his cheeks was torn and flapped meatily at each side of his face, exposing his teeth right up to his ears in a humorless grimace. A black liquid leaked out of each side of his exposed jawbone, and from a torn hole in his windpipe, splattering down onto my face and chest, like the rainy day in hell. I see him lurch forwards, and he bites down on me, and his teeth, those powerful, god-awful yellow teeth, connect with the arm I offered up to him. I smell his breath. It is gastric plastic. I can remember a flash of bruising heat then, a warm thickness as the teeth kept at me, slow but deliberate, like a kiss that had gone too far. I came apart like slow-cooked lamb as the meat slipped off the bone. My meat just slipped off my bone. That's mine, I said. Give it back to me. Trying to cling to normality, I apologised. Sorry. No. Sorry. Excusing him mutilating me before changing tactic. Kind of crying. Kind of begging for him to stop. Please stop. Please. Then it's just me, squirming in a pool of thick juices. Red and black and blue. I hear more than feel his teeth grind against my skull, and then the images blur together, silent and vague with horror, like a Monet painted in bile and feces. I make a sound like a goat, over and over and over again, into the blackness. Somewhere, my heart stopped, and I wasn't surprised. I had always asked too much of it. Then for a while there was nothing, just a deep emptiness. Not sleep, just a peaceful absence. I could perceive nothing at all, just the essence of me, only elsewhere. There is no better way for me to describe it. It was what it was, but that experience or lack thereof proved something to me, that there is something more to existence, something profound and beautiful and something that I would always be excluded from, something I excluded myself from all those years ago, 
I had no idea what I was sacrificing. After too short a time in that peaceful void, I became aware of a light in the darkness. A stab of silver to the extreme left of what I gradually saw was an inky blue background. It dawned on me that the silver I saw was the curve of the moon, and the inky blue background was a clear night sky. It was out of focus and blurred, and I couldn't connect to its beauty. To the left, the dotted yellow of the train station display reflected in glass. The sudden familiarity brought a flood of memories. That answer machine message. Being attacked. Then, Lucy. Lucy. Where was she? Was she safe? The thought ricocheted around my skull. How long had I laid here? I spun over onto my other side to see the clock that had mocked me with her lateness before everything had changed. But I didn't move. I couldn't. I remained motionless on the concrete, my eyes still transfixed on that supposedly beautiful night sky, while my mind thrashed with urgency. What had happened to me? With haste, I deduced that I must have been paralysed during the vicious attack by that deformed madman. My mind rang with fear and panic, but physically I gave none of it away. To calm myself down, I tried to hold my breath, only to find that I had none to hold. I wasn't breathing. The realisation exploded inside me, an attack of acute panic so extreme that I imagine had anyone been there to witness it, they would have seen sparks coming off me. But there was no one there, and I was still just an inappropriately dressed woman laid paralysed on her side, with her bloody arm twisted beneath her. The panic continued with constant agonising intensity until the dark blue night became the pale grey morning. At some point after what I imagined was about lunchtime, the fear in me dissipated and was replaced by ridiculous hysterical optimism, the mind's planned B when faced with insurmountable bad news. I recalled in detail stories I'd read in cheap magazines of people who woke from comas after 25 years or who experienced temporary paralysis at inopportune times, only to recover miraculously on their birthdays and managed to be buoyed by the recollection. I convinced myself that at some point someone would find me and fix me and take me to receive medical help. At the very worst, I would spend six months in a wheelchair whilst receiving physiotherapy. Hours later, when the possibility that I might never recover glistened into my cerebrum, I retreated from it to the place in my head where pop culture got stored. I replayed whole episodes of Friends, episodes I didn't know I'd seen, as my mind did its best to insulate me. But of course, the worst was still to come and my ultimate horror hung on the dark horizon of my life, dancing in its own grim inevitability. Chapter 4 After many hours of Chandler and Rachel and fake Manhattan apartments, I felt a single point of cold cut through the fiction behind my right eye. At first it was just a tickle, 
enough to draw my attention, but no more. But soon the tickle was an ache, and the single point was a golf ball-sized orb of freezing agony that grew to encompass the whole eye and the right side of my face and brain. It was like an ice cream headache, but without the ability to blink hard against it, and without the yin of the taste of sweetened cream to counter the yang of its searing neurological cold. I braced against it mentally, but it didn't recede. And I could only brace for so long. Eventually, I had to relent. And as I did, the white cold spread through my face and down into my arm and leg making my entire right side awash with electric agony. The pain settled into its new home, and I knew with awful certainty that it would not be temporary. The contrast of the numbness on my left and pain on my right was too much, each sensation reminding me of why the other was unbearable. I wheeled between torments, feeling the pain until I was a freezing furnace of suffering before escaping into the suffocating numbness, where I huddled until I needed to feel something again. I repeated this insane internal pirouette for many agonizing hours. Everything we ever experienced was just an alteration between these two frequencies. One high, one low. On, off. On, off. I estimate that it was early evening of that first day when I felt the first movement. The pain in me began to vibrate at a higher frequency, building up to something. I found out what when it reached an electric peak, and my right shoulder tugged backwards, causing my chest to hit the charred tarmac. It was a feeling not dissimilar to the one you get as you're drifting off to sleep and then feel yourself falling and jolt awake. Violent and involuntary, violently involuntary. An hour passed with me in this new position, hunched up, with my face against the ground, my right eye open and the ball pressed against the rough hardness of the gum-pocked tarmac. Then, an hour or so later, the vibration began again and built once more to a nerve-shredding crescendo the peak of which brought my right knee up in a spasm. I was now half knelt up and could see through my knees backwards down the track. On the flipped horizon, a fire was burning. The vibration began again, and my right hand was forced down into the ground, flipping me onto my left. With this, the pain caught fire and burned through my middle and into the left-hand side of me, eliminating the numbness for good. I remember being glad. I deserved all that pain. I knew as it tore through me that it was dissolving my organs and with a heavy liquid nausea, I felt myself become hollow where once I had substance. With that, the pain took control and with a spastic series of forced jerks and twitches, I was stood up. It dawned on me, as my dead body animated itself upright, that I was no longer in control. Body and mind had split into two separate entities. Both ached in their own way, but only one had any control, and though I could still feel everything, I was now just a passive observer, a witness to a changed reality. 
as my body shifted and lurched to gain a new kind of balance, I felt my liquefied insides drop, then drain out through the now useless holes between my legs. The fluid seeped through my tights, leaving a black puddle between my stilettos and a cold cavern in my core. A cavern where a lustful, eternal hunger would soon take up residence. I stood and swayed in the darkness, all angles and awkwardness. My eyes swung loosely in their sockets as the world spun in orbit. I had no volition over them, but dutifully, they continued to relay information to the brain in which I was now held captive. In and out of focus, a scene painted before me, an apocalyptic version of the station I had arrived at a day earlier. Blackened and shattered. Machinery still clicked and whirred. An automatic door kept trying to close on a chunk of melted train, and sunlight, diffused through low cloud, broke over the rough, grassy embankment. I felt its weak warmth, but could take no comfort in it. Like an infant opening its eyes for the first time she'd been born in hell. I had no expectation. Panic and pain had stripped it from me. I only knew that everything was new and everything was bad. The thin light grew through grey cloud and I caught my reflection in an advertising board. The picture behind the plexiglass was of an old woman smiling whilst talking on a mobile phone. I saw my mum in her. I imagined that black tar smile looming above her as it had me. I hope she died. Good God, I hope she stayed dead. My reflection was rippled in a plastic frame. I was dressed as I had been when I arrived at the train station, but now black and red lines ran down from a hole in my skull, streaking my face and blouse. My stilettos, still somehow attached to my feet, stood in the pool of the black gunge which had fallen out of me, and the arm I had used to defend myself hung stripped of flesh, the bone bleached white in the new sun. I was spoiled meat. Roadkill. Dog food. As I looked at the old woman in the advert and the reflection of the new, putrid me, a deep yearning for connection began where my womb once was. I worried about my mother and needed to find my daughter. I yearned for people, for my people. I felt a pull towards them spread out into each limb and give them purpose. I hungered to be with them, to hold them close to me, to know them completely and get lost in their warmth. It was such sweet agony and it bubbled up through me. As it got to my neck, I heard myself groan pathetically, a thin moan, like a frail orgasm. It was a hateful sound. No sooner had it left my throat than my body lurched forwards, using my desire as its motivation. It took me stumbling down the platform and into the station. The automatic doors sliding open to receive us more graciously than our abomination deserved. Turning left out of the station, we jerked and clattered down the long straight road. Far in the distance, other bodies stumbled and fell, but all in the same direction. The fire on the horizon. 
The stilettos lasted till the end of the car park. Chapter 5 Once in my sleep, I saw her as a little girl spinning in a huge white room, glossy walls reflecting fluffy pink clouds and little white coins. Her face was frowning, but she pulled her mouth up into a smile, and I could tell it was hurting her, but she did it anyway. In the middle of the room was a giant white dome, and I don't know why, but it was a nightmare. Chapter 6 It took two cycles of the sun for us to reach the end of the road, and with each passing hour, the terrible hunger for company doubled. Shuffling down that long straight road, I imagined that perhaps, when we did finally meet someone, they would have the answers I was looking for. I fantasized that they would put their arm around my shoulder and say, Shh, Zoe, don't worry. Everything's going to be okay. And fill me with medicines that didn't exist. And clean me and cure me. Of course, I was naive. I honestly thought that the maddening want for company was a natural human instinct brought on by the terrible sequence of events that had led me here. But I was about to learn otherwise. At the end of the long road was a house. It was a wooden house with an upstairs and a downstairs. Upstairs, a dim light flickered through the twilight and a large square window. The house was surrounded by a low wall. It offered her no protection. Quietly, my body dragged itself forwards until it was up against the meagre stack of bricks and then slid along it to where the gate hung ajar. Up the garden path we went and onto the decked porch where my foot kicked over a milk bottle. It spun and made that delicate, distinct noise that a spinning bottle makes. A weak female voice whispered from upstairs. Hello? Is that you, Eddie? I couldn't reply, obviously. But the body quickened itself and I felt the yearning shift into expectation, and I was so thirsty. The front door was open and swung on its hinges, and we entered into a dark hallway. Four coats hung on a stand to the left, and a small table beside it had a neat stack of letters and a cradle for a phone, but no phone. The smell of a recently extinguished candle arrived in the air. I only wanted to hug her. I wanted to share her warmth. The stairs went immediately up in front of us and we lurched towards them, bare feet padding on the thick carpet. Leaning against the wall, we made it up the stairs, stopping briefly to sway at the top before turning left down the hall. I just didn't want her to be alone anymore. There were three doors. One was open. I don't know why she left it open. We stopped in the open doorway. I could feel her living and breathing inside. My empty core filled up with lustful thirst and I felt the black bile rise up for the first time, burning plastic and battery acid. It's 
stung the soft tissues of my throat and filled my mouth until it drained down my chin and over my tits, mixing me into the pitch. With hope, she said, Eddie? And flicked on a reading lamp with shaking hands, knocking it to the floor. This woman of fifty-something crouched in the corner of her room, clutching a leather bag to her cream blouse. The light laid bare the truth to both of us. I was not her Eddie, and her expression, a silent vacuum of horror, let me know with a crushing, violent certainty that we were not there to make friends. The lamp cast flickering shades of us both backwards. They loomed over us and wrote her fear of me and my threat to her, emboldened on the walls behind us. My body took jagged steps towards her and she whimpered and begged. No, please, God, no, 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 please, please, please don't, please don't. But she didn't move. I don't think she could. Sometimes fear animates, sometimes it paralyzes. Terror held time still. Three. Two. One. I screamed inside for her, but it came out as a gasping moan, like an emphysemic laugh. I wanted to tell her I was sorry, that I didn't mean to laugh, that I just wanted to hold her and know her, and... My pale white arms reached out and grabbed loosely at her face and hair until they made purchase, and as soon as they did, they gripped hard and held her still. She stopped pleading when we held her tight, and then the teeth started their journey through her. Crunching through bone and chewing through cartilage for hours and hours and hours until she was all gone. My eyes were open the entire time. I wish she'd never turned on that lamp. We knelt in the wet area she left behind, the old woman, now a ball of bones and brain, scratching around inside me, and a thick pool of vital fluids on the old maroon and blue carpet. Images of the bleeding layers of her being stripped from her yellow skeleton strobed through me into the part of the brain that really, truly makes us who we are. The secret area where our worst deeds hide and where our proclamations of innocence hold no substance. That shaded corner where you cannot score out the things you did to your husband. The place that made me swap those tablets and that gapes abject terror into our nights. The images of her stricken face as its loose skin came away affect me more than the tsunami of gore that followed. So new to me was the red truth inside her. My body wallowed in its first kill. It bloated and gassed and smeared itself with its own black effluence, rolling in her remains, staining itself with the heavy metal scent of the gore that had so recently been a terrified wife, sister, mother of someone. Then the teeth began to chatter, racking my brain, and we stood up with an enlivened sense of purpose. We made it down the stairs and away from the house, walking that shuddering walk through a thin hedgerow, 
and across a playing field, past a blood-stained playground, and onto a dual carriageway falling over the metal barricade designed by someone to keep wayward vehicles within its confines, but now entirely devoid of purpose. We thrashed a little, but soon found our feet, and were back up and on our way, always falling towards the burning town less than a mile away. We passed an abandoned minibus, and I saw in the reflection of the glass that I had a thicket of grey hair hanging out of my mouth, and red neck, chest, arms and hands. There were no more cars on the road, no people in the houses, but there were people in the town ahead, and I felt my belly swell black in anticipation of them. I am sat at my desk. My face is bathed in cool blue light. Half a smile and one eye from your old face observe me between windows on my desktop. It's too late. I will never be free of these coils of lead. Don't jump, Zoe. Don't jump. Chapter 7 the bones in my neck cracked and clicked as we jolted and stumbled without grace or equilibrium towards the town ahead, piloted as I now was by the gangrenous amateur who had taken me over. His presence violated me, his violence a pure, annihilating lust. As he shuffled, I moaned through once familiar places that existed now only as a shade of a recent past. In my memory, I see a tin of off-brand baked beans roll out of an open door of a ransacked grocery. A step, a lurch. I hear the sound of water running, and as my head lolls, I catch a glimpse of a torrent pouring out from beneath the door of a dental surgery, the door and windows of which had been hastily, clumsily boarded over. We fall against a phone box, the handset hangs loosely and beeps an alarm, and I recognise the cliché as I see a severed hand holding a car key on a bench covered in blood. Little horror stories ended everywhere my gaze fell. A series of events that made up a life, then ended suddenly. Up ahead, a car was jackknifed across the road. As we got closer, I noticed that the door was open on the driver's side, and the footwell was full of blood and bone and bile and blackness. Signs on the rear window said something about Essex and baby on board. I regret so many things. I was only a child. How could I have felt so much hate? On the other side of the car, I heard heavy wet squelching cut up with whines and moans. I slid around the back of the van where three figures were getting shakily to their feet. One was a teenage boy, skinny and slight, with fair hair and a blue hooded top. He looked like any teenage boy, except he had a space where his forehead used to be, and a face streaked red. It looked like his brain had been crying, and he whinnied like a foal, watching its lame mother take a shotgun to the head. The other two figures did not appear to be faring so well. A man and a woman, both extremely overweight and almost completely naked, 
except for some torn, dirty rags bunched up around their middles. Heavy, grey, lacerated fat hung in rancid, thick ribbons from the woman's guts, exposing purple and green matter, and her yellow pelvic bone in full, technicolour gore. She had no lower jaw, and so her tongue hung out of a rough hole where her bottom teeth used to be, and it convulsed erratically against her neck, making a wet, slapping sound. He had suffered a deep cut to the outside of his right thigh, and the weight of the flesh beneath had pulled the tissue off the bone. It collected around his ankle like a baggy stocking full of pus. All three were smeared in black. My body lurched me into their midst. Their eyes were stricken, and I cried out for them, for us, in a long high moan that asked for us to die, now, please. But we didn't die, no more than we had already. And then there were four. We walked on through the suburbs, toward the town, because our stomachs knew there were brains there. The boy and I slightly ahead of the other two who kept getting caught up on bits of the environment. Even a low curb caused them to drop to the ground and with each fall, they would leave a smear of themselves behind. They thrashed and whined against their own ineptitude, but still, the boy moaned the most. Our tragic little group pressed ever forwards, following streams of rats through the vacant streets and alleys, down a ramp into a car park, through its echoing chamber into a shopping precinct where they teemed in their hundreds, gnawing and chewing their way through the fabric of our society. The precinct gleamed with marble and chrome, and up above, daylight cast itself through a pyramid of glass onto the serrated teeth of an escalator, rotating downwards. The fat man had been at the front of our group when we arrived at the bottom of the descending mechanical stairs and his sagging girth blocked our access to its persistently temporary bottom step. For days we fell against him and it as it bit at his thighs and knees, taking chunks of him into itself until it was a turning band of the blood and bone and skin that his body seemed so willing to give up. The sun came and went, lighting us occasionally through the atrium above. During the daylight hours, there was a certain comedy to the slapstick klutzing, and we lolled and tripped like broken marionettes, but comedy was all too absent during the nights, when all that was left was the boys crying and the wet sound of fat man smearing against metal. I don't know why the lights were off and the escalator on. Maybe someone got eaten somewhere between the two switches. Eventually, our serrated tormentor had eaten enough of the fat man and slowed to a juddering halt. Amidst the smell of fusing gears and melting man matter, we fell and climbed over what was left of the back of him and descended, finally. It was dusk when we fell through the broken glass of a once sliding door and onto the street. My body scrambled and thrashed against the glass and tarmac, and I saw shoes and legs and feet. Lots and lots of shoes and legs and feet. 
some in white trainers, some in black boots, some bare, some in torn socks. Some were green and purple and some were missing entirely and hobbled forwards on blooded, soggy stumps. And some were the feet of children. But all were going the same way. And my body pulled itself up against them as we moved as one unstoppable sea of clattering teeth and whining hunger towards a two-storey grey building on the corner of the street we occupied. I killed her dog. His name was Sam. He was old and I throttled him in his sleep. And it wasn't spontaneous, nor an act of mercy. I planned to do it, and I did. You see, in the mornings I would see her look down at him in his basket, with increasingly questioning eyes, and she'd ask why he didn't go outside to the toilet anymore. I could see where this was going, and I couldn't answer. I just stood there, holding the tea towel with familiar white knuckles, waiting for the moment to pass, waiting for her to just stop talking. When she was a baby, she would call him Doc and laugh, and he would be patient whilst she brushed his tail too hard with a little purple brush from that cheap doll we bought her from that toy shop in Spain. She came home from school one day and I told her he had jumped over the gate and run away. But as my lie pierced her world, the dead dog was wrapped in a rug in the boot of my car, flaking and leaking its last onto the black felt of my grey estate and staining the air with my crime. She cried all night and most of the following day. Her misery was a cloying grey felt that filled me up. I was only trying to protect her. She'd already lost too much. I want to tell you our dog didn't wake up and look at me with streaming, questioning eyes that asked why the hands that fed him all these years were now crushing the cartilage in his windpipe. I want to say that he didn't squeal and gasp, legs flailing, tail whipping this way and that whilst I clamped his neck to the floor, that he didn't bite through his own tongue and that it didn't flap around spraying bright blood over my rigid, shaking arms, arms that betrayed the part of me that cried for him, and arms that held him firm till he gave up and just let himself die. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I was. But I couldn't let any more light leave her, John. We pressed against the rain-slick grey police station, situated at the point where two wide roads crossed, Inside me I felt the hunger lust flip and turn, trying to get out, trying to get us through these jerking corpses, through that wall and in there, into the room beyond where I could feel those warm, dry bodies strut back and forth and round in circles. We ached to break through their thick skulls and into the warm, wet complexity inside. Their brains had to stop being in their heads. They just had to. I could not count us, but I listened to our collective wail fill the grey afternoon and bounce between the buildings, echoing and emphasising our horde. The pressure of each of us multiplied until there was no space between and we were just a tsunami of hunger that had to be fed. 
We would not leave until their effluvia was smeared down our chests and the hairs on their heads were clogging our throats and nails. This I knew. For days we pressed and thronged, the passage of time distorted and the sun seemed to flash above as it fell in and out of an indifferent sky. In its light, I caught slivered glimpses of us, not as the mass of shambolic rot we must have appeared as to the harried faces that sometimes looked out from behind the gridded windows, but as an organised swarm that ebbed and flowed around its prey, tiring it out, confusing it. There was a beauty in it. There is beauty in everything if you look deeply enough into it. Into one shattered night I heard someone scream, Fuck you, you fucking fucks! And a slight, grey man fell into us from an open window. We dismantled him quickly. Fibula to the left, clavicle to the right. I felt shards of his skull crunch and mix with his blood and my spit all around my mouth and under the tongue I wanted to say sorry with but couldn't. A stockier man appeared from behind a heavy blue door and made a run for it through the empty space we left behind as we scrummed over the thin one. The stocky man got a few metres further but came apart just as easily. The door he burst from swung idly on its hinges and we surged and glugged through the hole it left and into the station. We clattered down the narrow blue corridor, toppling plastic chairs and boxes of paper, passing through the empty reception area where a blue fire burned in a metal bin. Beyond were two cells separated by metal bars, each occupied. In one was a single man who wore a police uniform and who had scabs on his face. His head hung low and he grinned a thin grin as we entered and surrounded him. In the second cell were another two men, both dressed in dirty jeans and t-shirts. They pulled away from us, knocking a few neatly stacked cans of food and bottles of coke to the ground, their revulsion to us as strong as our attraction to them. They shouted, God, no! Fuck! Oh, fuck, no! We forced ourselves towards them, a thousand strong. My body pressed hard against the bars, forcing parts of me through. I felt my ribs crack and rearrange in my chest, my once beautiful torso becoming just a wet, misshapen bag of human parts. But no matter how hard we pressed against those flaky green bars, they succeeded in keeping us apart. Our arms reached only a third of the way into the cells, and we tried to snatch their hair or clothes, but we did so without success, for now, and so we reached an impasse. The prisoners in the cell to the right sat and held each other's gaze, reassuring each other, telling each other not to look. Don't look, just don't look at them. Close your eyes and cover your ears, and they're gone. You're at home, and the fire is on, and Zack is lying on the rug, and you're falling asleep, and tomorrow you're going to wake up in our bed, and they'll all be gone. But he wouldn't, and we wouldn't. We protruded grey-green limbs through the bars towards them, 
sometimes scraping the side of these imprisoned people with our relentless horror as they tried to pretend everything was going to be okay. For the first day, they blocked us out and hugged each other like children. The older man, called Alex, comforted the younger one, called Mike. He said, Everything's going to be okay in the end. Just remember, if it's not okay, it's not the end. They clutched and reassured and fed from tins with their eyes shut, and for a while, it worked. And the two men managed to hold on to themselves and each other. And all the time, the officer in the cell to the left just sat cross-legged and smirked. Soon, though, the food ran out, and several new days dawned, each one worse than the last. And now, we at least had our hunger in common with the men in the cells. Gradually, between the stench of sweat and shit, a vinegar tone arrived, like a triangle in the air that no one could see but everyone knew was there. A spiked miasma that meant nothing good. We still gnashed and pawed and moaned, but the urgency had gone out of our animation, as a certainty arrived amongst the dead and the soon-to-be. These weak, flawed and hungry human beings would do our work for us. Alex stopped comforting his friend, and an angled darkness arrived in Mike's eyes with an obtuse twitch that pulled his knees up to his chest. He hugged them tight like he knew he'd be separated from them soon, like he was saying goodbye to himself. The dark, dark man in the dark, dark, dark cell to the left beckoned a weakened, but still reluctant Alex over to the bars that separated them and whispered Diesel into his ears. Sensing the tone change, too late, what could he do? Mike started a low wail. Hungry and sleep-deprived and out of time, I saw the madness catch in his soul like a fire, and he rocked and whined and ground his teeth as their end began. The officer, speaking aloud for the first time, convinced Alex to put his hands through the bars. That's it, all the way in. Alex cried like a child being punished as he pushed his hands in as far as he could. Then the thin man, that horrible thin man, gripped him tight and cuffed him hard with a pair of silver handcuffs to the bench. He stood up and put his hands on his hips and said, Little pig, little pig, and bent down and ate the warm flesh off Alex's arms. The tightening band in Mike snapped, and he screamed a scream from the end of time till specks of blood sprayed out of his mouth. Then he tore off his shirt and pants and clawed at his own face until the blood streaked down his big chest. Then, mewling, bent down and chewed and tore at the flesh on the neck of the man that had hugged and fed and reassured him only hours earlier. The sun split the acrid grey steam in the air through the narrow slit of a window, and Mike, now just animal, bucked hard against the older man caught in the bars, who had gone limp and just wobbled and jerked as the two men plucked and boned. After Mike had filled his stomach with human flesh, his face went grey, then slack. 
and as his hunger left him, his humanity returned, and he fell back against us, and offered no resistance as we punished him for his gluttony. He remembered himself as his head came away from his neck, and he cried through what remained of his windpipe and mouth until it was just bubbling blood. Alex bled out into a pool, and the officer of the law laughed as he stripped bare and finished himself over the orchestra of viscera he conducted with one final flourish. Then, as his laughter diminished and his face lost its wicked animation, he unlocked the gate and walked amongst our forest of arms with his own outstretched, and let us crucify him. We cracked through his skull and I saw a dead version of a man in an ambulance driver's uniform, delicately eat only some of the brain within. He tongued and nibbled at the grey matter, visible through the cracked hole in the officer's head, with something approaching surgical precision, then dropped the body, leaving it jerking on the cell floor, with only the hole in its head and bite marks to its neck. We shuffled away from the place, where these three unlikely lives terminated, and a kind of new one was beginning. Chapter 9 22 In between, you left me. I sat in the dark, as your red lies bled under my door, and those four blue walls pressed in against me. So tight. I clung to our life like it was worth clinging to, like there was anything I could do to keep you. My fingers were bleeding. Did you see that? Did you care? I didn't know you had already gone, so I just kept running. Always getting faster. Looking, but not finding. Alive but not living. Chapter 10 We made it into a hospital where nurses took care of our survivors, young and infirm. You know how I came to hate the hospital. I will not think of what happened there. They were all red. I just won't. Chapter 11 This nameless town was now dead. The black saliva that dried in my mouth and settled in my belly confirmed what was already obvious. We meandered this way and that, following faint instincts and whispers of desire that arrived on cold winds from distant places where people survived. The black swarm ebbed around, then away from the town following tiny forces of magnetism, each at that moment no nearer or no more pressing than the next. Once I caught the eye of another and let myself wonder who was in there. What had they done to deserve this? It was a pointless question, one I could never know the answer to, but I did know that it would be a while till we would find anyone else to end, and this dawning knowledge allowed me a sort of peace which of course wasn't peaceful at all, but isn't everything relative. I drifted away from the maddening crowd, my twisted legs taking me at an almost leisurely pace down a lane lined with big old houses, each with a grand set of stairs leading up to it, and each 
now a violent shade of itself, dressed in fire or blood or broken glass. Streetlights flickered on and off, trying not to look. For a while, a ragged brown pup followed me. Its frothy pink tongue flapped and lolled, and it panted like it was laughing at my inertia. The space between the houses increased as the buildings themselves got bigger, and eventually, I found my body dragging its carcass over a wide avenue and down an embankment into a field of hard, rigid dirt, dark under a bruised sky. An empty coldness arrived with the night winds and penetrated me. I felt it as I would if I had been in a quickly freezing field on a night when my life was my own. Only now I was powerless to find shelter, unable to remove myself to a place of warmth. I couldn't even shiver against it. Instead, my body carried me deeper into the silver-plating moonlight. Light which seemed to be crystallizing around me. The biting wind cracked its lash, and I felt the movement of my body slow a little, before I felt the hard spikes of intense sub-zero transmute anywhere in me where moisture met air. At first it was my bottom lip, a mixture of bodily fluids, some my own, some new to me, dribbled down over it and I felt it flare in cold heat. The thin skin there hardened then, the ice spread into my flesh. The weight of my newly frozen lip dragged it down, exposing my cracked and broken teeth onto which the ice spread too, bringing a pain like a thousand burning needles into the centres of the teeth I had killed people with and making the ice cream headache I felt on the train station platform seem like something to be desired. Rapidly, the iced pain spread deep into me, past my tonsils, down my throat, and into what awful remained in the core of me, then through that even, and into the marrow of my bones. Finally, the surface of my eyes iced over, sealing me in, and for the first time in many Many days my body stopped moving. I was still, but now in place of movement, I had only pain. A pain so vibrant and intense that it seemed to become a sound inside me that rang out at an unwavering pitch, and my whole body was now just an instrument that could play only that one note, and I was its audience of one. There was nothing else to experience. No thought could enter, no emotion be felt. Only the pain existed, and I existed only for the pain to be felt. It cannot be put into words. It is too much suffering. I don't know how long I stayed there in the reverberation of that ecstatic note. Days? Weeks? Does it matter? When time stands still, all you have left are the images in your mind's eye. And these were the images in mine. Seventeen little years. Still so smooth. Life ran through me a torrent. Flowed through, clear and deep. I was so beautiful, reflected naked in that glassy blue lake. She smiled and turned away from him 
and dove down into herself, that girl in the glass. She is me, but I will never be her. Down, blue, green, black. She couldn't have known that other men had arrived in the shade of the trees. A kind of men that scare and scar. Men that now rippled above her with granite fists and swollen intent. They forced her and tore her a tear so deep it would reach her soul. Part of her would never resurface. From then on, part of her would always be drowning. At some point, the frost on my left eye melted as the errant sun caught it, and I saw out through a damaged cornea over a white field that glistened like acres of finely broken glass. Please don't imagine beauty. There was none to see. The screeching note of pain quietened for an hour to let me take in the scene. Then the sun dropped away. My eye froze back over. The music played on. Chapter 12 Midday, one day. The sun's pathetic warmth broke through the needle pitch and I finally felt my repugnant flesh begin to thaw. I stood on the spot, still largely frozen to the ground, as my awful body tried to retrieve itself from the ice. Suddenly, I felt the air ripple around my head with expectant urgency. A blackbird dropped out of the sky, landing on my head. It bounced and pecked at my face, cooing and clawing through a flurry of black wings, plucking at the lice in my matted hair, trying to find meat on me worth eating. It found none and beat an exit to the skies, leaving me alone. Take my eyes, I thought. Please come back and take my eyes. Constant agony had faded to a dull ache and the slackened, thawing flesh on the side of my head slid down my face and hit the floor with sick, wet thuds. Under a low brow I looked out over that now filthy brown field and saw the world anew, as punisher and aggressor. The whole universe existed only to crash element against element, to create infinity out of endless collision. Everything was born of violence, I saw that now. The only thing that ever truly existed was cruelty and I was here to feel all of it and to inflict more. Movement. My scarred matter spoiled in the weak sun and within an afternoon the ice in my marrow had defrosted enough for my body to regain its lurching momentum and soon I was out of the field and trembling down the banks of a clear stream of melted water. The recent loss of the thin flesh on my skull and chest and arms somehow helped me move with less impediment, but caused elbows and ribs to clatter like a voodoo glockenspiel. Weeks pass. I am alone in many fields, the countryside so hard to navigate with these bones and this brain. Horror and hatred give way to boredom and despondency. Eventually, a hedge. On the other side of the hedge was a road. I fell forwards, slack. 
a weak tug taking me somewhere this road no doubt had taken countless others under better circumstances. But I knew I wasn't going anywhere good. All of a sudden, the hunger sparked hard in my belly. Through the hedge I could hear the screech of rubber on tarmac, then doors slamming shut and equipment being moved hastily, all the while people shouted and screamed and argued. What are you doing? Don't leave me! Just go, Karen, get in the car! I felt my eyes widen and my arms scrabble against the muddy embankment. I fought against the hedge, looking for a weakness to exploit so I could get to them and sink my teeth into the wonderful, complex brains inside those glistening white skulls. Mum, don't go, please! Please! So I could slide my dirty, torn tongue round the warm, smooth dome behind the place where their eyes had so recently been, and spill acrid black death down upon them, all over their bastard, torn faces. But before I could get through, I heard the engine speed away, and I felt two of the bodies draw into the distance, and I was consumed by despair and sadness. My God, the sadness. It was the melancholy felt by colliding planets. It was the sadness the universe felt as an eternity of expansion slowed and reversed into crushing contraction. It was everything that had ever been wrong and I had let this happen by letting them get away. It was all my fault, as if I hadn't caused enough despair. I moaned a long, deep moan that filled the early spring air and was the summation of all the pain that had ever been felt. But I could feel that there was someone still left up there on the roadside. With rage I spasticated and spat pitch through my rough-hewn mouth. I would bring down the full fury of the despair I had been forced to endure upon that person up there on that road. There would be no mercy. Ever again. I fell through the hedge, face down on a patch of once-mown grass, now just a hash of brown weeds and scrub. As my body jerked and jolted, I heard the sound of a weak motor and seized into an upright position. With a cocked head, I saw a car park with a short beige building with the word toilet painted on pebble dash in green. Another said no tipping in red. A long straight road disappeared into the distance in both directions, lined by the hedge from which I spewed forth. The body I wanted was inside that little beige box up ahead, just one person, all alone. My eyes bulged again at the opportunity, the muscles around my left, soggy and gangrenous since the thaw, gave way and I felt the globe drop lower with a sickening wet slurp that echoed a little in the dome of my skull. My vision doubled and stayed that way. Now everything was twice. I could hear him sob as I slowly made my way over the grass and into the car park. His cries reverberated in the cold, damp restroom and gave me pause. For a moment, I remembered the humanity that had been so quick to leave me. For a minute, I was a mother again. The instinct to nurture bubbled inside me and that thin, gasping moan left me again, now with a high-pitched whistle that played through a hole in my neck, 
of which I had been previously unaware. The noise silenced the crying beige box, and I felt the wind still as he held his breath. Then, through that stillness, a steady beeping began, and he reversed into view in an electric wheelchair. I moaned and lurched towards him, my arms outstretched, tugged forth by the sex of his meat. He heard me and looked back over his shoulder towards me, and his clawed right hand manipulated the joystick on the arm of his special blue chariot. He spun around and for a moment we locked eyes. His were red and swollen, mine apparently too awful to contemplate. Dark hair stuck to the moisture that formed in beads on his brow. A shade of stubble betrayed his youth. He could have been handsome had he not been so withered. His face twisted up into a grimace of disgust and fear as he took in my image, panting. I felt parts of me flap loose as I lurched forwards again, but this time down a high curb, jolting hard on the lower ground. I felt my right foot twist, then pop as it dislocated and swung uselessly at the end of my leg. Then I fell flat on the tarmac. I spent so much time face down on tarmac. Seizing the opportunity, he hit the stick that manoeuvred him and tore down the gravel path, past my thrashing, snatching corpse, and clunked off the curb and onto the long, straight road that led him away from me. My inelegant frame found itself again, and I went after him, gnashing and falling on one good foot and a right-angled ankle. Despite his speed, I persevered as he diminished into the distance, the whir of the electric motor that had helped him survive me carried off in the warm, gentle breeze of the sunny afternoon. I heard him laugh and whoop into the crystal-clear sky as he disappeared from view. But still I pressed on. As long as the abyss inside me knew he was there, I would always press on, because I was eternal and he was not, and I had only one need, and it was him, and his flesh and bones and eyes, and brain. And progress was slow, but it was still progress, and after an hour or so my loose swinging eyes agreed for a moment on the same blue chair in the middle of the same long, straight strip of dark grey. However, now instead of diminishing, he grew bigger with every floundering step I took as the distance between us altered in my favour. The wind carried the sounds of him towards me, like a child telling tales. I heard him shout and hit out at the blue bumper car that was now motionless in the middle of the long, straight road. I shuddered on through broken bones. Come on, you piece of shit, he shouted, crashing his ambulant limbs into the sides of his tragic little vehicle. Thrusting his torso, he tried to lurch the car forwards with a clumsy determination. He looked back over his shoulder, but I was hidden in his blind spot. Are you still there? he said into the wind. Fear stained his words, but beneath them, I'm sure I heard a layer of quiet resignation. Relief even, but I may be projecting. The wind retreated for a moment, and a two-tone moan emitted from the holes in me. He heard it and began to sob. The sob turned into a cry. 
then a scream, then a sob again before he began to talk. Is this where I'm going to die? Into the breeze. He didn't need the answer I couldn't give him. And for a beaten time there was just the two of us. The warmth of the sun and a lilting birdsong. It wouldn't be long now. He hung his head low for a moment. From here, his skull looked thick. I was crushed by a car. He threw the sound over his shoulder, back at me. I was walking into a petrol station and had to squeeze past the front of a parked Mondeo. We needed milk. It was blue. The car, like this, he said of his wheelchair, and his hand stroked its gleam. The engine was idling and the man inside said he had the clutch down and the stick in first. But he was old and his legs were weak. He turned to get something off the passenger seat but his foot slipped and the car jumped forwards. It crushed me into the wall. I was kind of sideways. Closer now, I could see the back of his head quite clearly and could make out the vertebrae in the ridge of his spine where it appeared above the line of his T-shirt. I was ten, he said, but I didn't care. The man in the car came out round to the front and held my hand till the ambulance came. He couldn't stop crying. His shoulders moved up and down. Did you see the people who left me at those toilets back there? That was my mum and dad. Well, he's not my real dad, but she's always made me call him dad. His name's Steve. When I was little, I remember her holding me still, and it burned. And they were laughing. I remember them laughing. Space and time. I'm not scared of you, you know. I can hear you. I know you're getting closer. Slow down, though, please. There are things I want to say. There was a woman at the hospital, a nurse. I told her I was frightened of going home. She knew, but she let them take me anyway. Her eyes when I was leaving. He sobbed a while longer. He needed to. We had good days too. He trailed off as he contemplated his clawed hands. He was so close now. So this is all I get? Just a couple of minutes? I was almost upon him. He looked back and saw me. My teeth chattered and sprayed black spit into the air. His face registered no revulsion. He'd seen worse. Wait, he said, but I couldn't. Just give me one more minute. And he lifted his head up to the sky and I think he smiled. I should have looked up more. It's so blue up there, isn't it? My hands found his shoulders and held tight. For a second, I felt them loosen in my hands as I pulled us together. My arms wound around his chest and the teeth clamped down on the top of the spine that had failed him so long ago, and as they crunched through those remaining vertebrae, I felt him relax in my arms. He had no choice. We ate him in a frenzy of tooth and nerve, 
and the sheets of his scarred, pale skin gave testament to the many abuses inflicted upon him. And then he was gone, and the world was no better or no worse. It was just as bad as it had always been, but it was all coming to an end. There is an echo in time just after you kill someone, and that echo creates a space. It's a space that draws you in and in which knowledge collects. All the pain and all the love, all the bombs and the sideways glances, the taste of fish and the cut of a blunt knife and the light in the morning at the bottom of the sea. It's a never-ending library, and if you spend long enough in its echoing chambers, you see that we're all just really chapters in a book that we both read and write until our red ink runs dry and our eyes turn to dust in our skulls. So slow now, so little of me left, just teeth and bone. I rattle like a junkie on a Sunday morning. The rattle brings a decaying old man out from under a bridge and I lead him on. I don't know how long it took to get down the road and over another featureless field, past another deserted petrol station, collecting time and rotting corpses. Three, eleven, fifty-nine, three hundred and seven. Forwards, onwards, always. She was waiting for me. The hill on the horizon looked familiar. Just one more to climb. Chapter 13 Over the hill now, but not far away. The black block that rose up before me was unfamiliar from this angle, but I already knew where we were. I didn't need its recognition. I had known I would end up here since I lost that last stiletto. The school she ran away to looked so alien from this angle as I descended the hill behind it. I recalled satchels and P.E. kits and the parents' evenings. Do you remember? She would talk too much, they would say, and I would try not to be jealous that they could hear her voice. They were so hard to go to alone. Inquisition burned through feigned sympathy. Now thousands of mothers and uncles and cousins and dads were here already, moaning up into the shattered night sky, and I led a gaggle of their rot down the grassy knoll with my need and my love. Love. Love will tear us apart, they say, but so will tooth and nail. And I had all three. She was there, and she was mine and I had to show her who I had become. No, I had to show her who I always was. I freefall into the end. I see grainy footage of bodies falling from fiery towers, not quite dead yet, but with no life left to speak of. Just a persistent downward movement, tortured thought and one wet, red inevitability. In the scrum now, pushing forwards through the weak, gangrene, purple, brown, it gave away like tender lamb. Weeks pass. Often it rains. Galaxies spin a web overhead. 
One night, the moon peers over burst blue clouds and bores into me with its lidless gaze. Its infinite stare says only, yes. The weak and the old break apart, and their remains become mush beneath my feet, piles of moaning offal and bone. Stepping stones. I rise up over their sackened bodies toward the window and press against the streaked glass. It shatters under our legion and I fall hard against the battened boards inside. Through the boards I hear young voices make desperate noises, but I keep pressing. Days later, the boards give way too and we fall inwards into a dining hall and I know that she is sat in the leather seat by the fireplace because I can taste her sweat on the air around it. My ragged tongue flicks through the air and the black bubbles up out of all the holes in me. The floor is wet with my gastric slick and I slide forward in it as I follow her sweet scent. It smells like nighttime honeysuckle on a salty beach and I can't do this anymore. I don't want to fucking be here or there or me or anything. I want to smash my fucking skull in and be spilled across these boards and have my soul mix into the thin air and dilute away into nothing. I want to be nothing and nowhere and no one and wash away into the sea where mermaids swim and comb their hair and I had never killed you or her or them or us. My God, why? Why did this become me? I had been a child once. Forwards. Through arms and legs and burning black spittle, I make it out of the battalion of hungry dead and into the corridor. The first through, I hear the door swing shut behind me and the bodies pile up against it, gnashing and clawing, but it sounds heavy and it doesn't give, not for a while at least. At the far end of the corridor are two large double doors that lead out into the garden and away into the changed world. I remember walking through them on her first day, her two steps ahead. They creak and groan under the pressure of the hungry horde outside. I move on fractured legs down the shattered corridor to where I know I need to be. And there she is. She rounds the corner of the common room, clutching a plank of wood with nails in one end. Her thin face is streaked with grime and grit and salt, and I ache at her hunger. I am consumed by a mother's need to feed her young. Two skinny teenage boys run past her down the corridor, then up a wide staircase. One shouts, Lucy, you fucking idiot, move! But she stops still. She is harder than I remember almost a woman now. She looks at me with diamond eyes. They glisten and soften for a moment as she sees through my black mask and the tears that streak it and recognises me by the skull we both share. My eyes fight each other. One can't look at her. One can't look away. Oh God, Lucy, I'm so sorry. A scream arrives from around the corner, followed by the familiar sound of wet meat hitting the floor, the sound of progress being made. Lucy looks back over her shoulder, considering her options. She blinks through tears with eyes that have seen too much pain in the sliver in time since they first opened. Pain that I tried to save her from. 
pain that I admit that ultimately I inflicted. Skinny, dirty, older, harder. She drops the plank and comes closer. We want her to. We are reaching out to her. We groan because we know, but we don't want to stop. I feel moisture clear a course through the many dried fluids on what's left of my face. She follows the black tear down, then looks into my loose, wet eyes, and I know she sees me. She sees all of me. All the hidden things. She always did. And then it's time. Her shoulders loosen, and she moves forward one last time, and we embrace. We hold her in our arms of bone. I see our old lounge. The TV is on and I hear the telephone ring in the next room. She answers it. Now I see Lucy on her way to bed. I kiss her goodnight on the top of her head, but I kiss her too hard, and my teeth grind against the skull we made. She doesn't struggle. I watch as we undo her, put her back where she came from. I see a red flower opening, then unravelling. I see all of her hidden beauty. Beauty I made, and beauty only I will ever appreciate in its component parts. When she was born, she was so good. She was such a good girl. Good girl, Lucy. Good girl. She never screamed and cried like the other children. She never screamed. You lay naked on the cold white tiles surrounded by a foam of pink froth and dissolving vitamins which they scattered around the giant ashen dome of your gaunt, bald head. The heavy musculature that had attracted me to you in that waiting room all those years ago had long since drained down a catheter and into a plastic bag beside the bed, as the cancer that had recently eaten into your brain dissolved the best of you and now left you convulsing in a pool of epileptic spit tinged pink with tongue blood. After about seven minutes, you came round. Your eyes swam, and as you fought for the ability to focus, you looked up at me, sitting on the closed toilet lid. I knew those eyes so well. Every fleck and vein. They flickered between me and the pills on the floor, asked the question your useless, twisted mouth couldn't. Because it's taking too long, John. I picked at my flaking nails stained red. This isn't about you anymore. Just go, quickly, and let her have her life back. He just gawped and gasped, like a goldfish dying in the remnants of its shattered tank. Your beautiful eyes raged, then pleaded, then rolled back in your head. As your pathetic body racked with its last convulsion, I turned away from you one last time and said, I loved you, into thin air. An hour later, I called the ambulance. Epilogue Time everywhere and nowhere creates to destroy it is its only purpose, in 
then out, in, then out. And I am the end. I have always been the end. I ended you, and her, and him, and them, and us. I tore through our collective history like a plague of memory, and now only mine remains, and ultimately comes down to this. I wrapped her, then unwrapped her in a blanket of bread. The pull inside has gone. For a while after I ate our daughter, the magnetic desire remained, bloodlust pulling us forward past the school toward another genocide. But my body was trampled by the ravenous stampede, and my twisted legs became mush beneath me. Scrambling arms could not release us from where we had become caught in the broken floor. And so here we remained, whilst other dead bodies tumbled towards new mastication. For years the pole was ecstatic agony. Limbs and digits frenzied day and night to free them, but fingers are just meat, and meat is weak, and after only a few days of thrashing, an unlikely possibility became an impossibility. Here we would remain. Me, a thought, a collection of memories, a notion of humanity. My body, my prison, and my monster. And Lucy, a light, a daughter, and a ball of bones and hair in my gut. She was back where she began, and this was as close to a happy ending as I could ever have hoped for. Gracelessly, we groaned and gnashed through several aching decades, trapped in the crumbling school which was slowly burying us alive or dead or whatever we were. Then, during one starry night just before the falling building extinguished the sky completely, somewhere the last human light went out, and with it the pole stopped abruptly. Soggy stumps dropped down to the ground with a thud and fell still. Listen, said the wind as it found me through the cracks in the building. They are all gone. Peace. Over the next several hundred years, I looked out through degrading eyes and watched as the building that would become my casket crumbled and flaked. I never understood how fragile the things we created were like fine-spun glass, just sandcastles. It fell in fits and starts, the school, as insect and breeze brought the outside in and upholstered me in weed and moss, but only as far as my neck, only ever as far as my neck. Through the gaps in mortar and oak, I watched as glorious, unbounded nature unfurled, released from the burden of our humanity. It danced and created and expressed itself in beautiful new strokes of a wide blue canvas. Through the falling building I saw and heard trees of silver thread play a deep vibrato into the air, and a flock of metallic orange birds danced a zigzag for me through turquoise. A thousand more years of change. The school became just another part of the mossy hill. A beetle burrows into my eye socket, chewing 
through those deflated white globes and bringing with it a seed that bursts into a tree. Its roots crack open my skull from the inside and finally I am blind. But somehow in these endless days I see more than I ever did. I spread into the dirt and become it and it me and I don't know how to describe how I perceive this. But we are each other. Underground I join the mycelium. Spiralling structures tell me how they pushed us up into the world, crafted us from their own parts. Just an experiment, they say. Just a game they played. But the experiment failed, and the game lost its humour. And so Spore and Air aborted their baby, conspiring at their cellular level as we smeared ourselves over the surface of their planet. They animated our dead through virus and instinct and, with their beautiful cruelty, made the problem into the solution. Finally, they trapped people like me within their grotesque soldiers, perhaps to bear eternal punishment for the mistakes of a species, or perhaps to preserve us like butterflies in a glass case. They would not say, but I accept our fate. All I have left is the thought of you. Our story is etched on our DNA into the fabric of our bodies combined. You and I, in her, in me. Through web and mould, our molecules carbonize and replicate forever. Nothing is wasted. Your lives had value. I recount every detail. The way motes of our skin mixed in the air of our home and fell through coloured light cast through spindles and that stained glass window halfway up the stairs. The heavy, soft feeling just before you fall asleep on the couch on a Wednesday afternoon as the TV casts flickering lies onto a threadbare carpet. The freckles on our beautiful daughter's arm a constellation in a universe we created. The privilege of loving her enough to kill you. I honour the best parts of humanity by never forgetting. I must honour the worst in the same way. For millennia I do. This tale, I tell it. Never out loud, but the trees hear me. And they know what I did. They forgive me, then they die heat. Our remains calcify and stratify between layers of dirt and ash. Memories become grit, become stone. Pressure immense. Constant. No room here for anything but broken compression and this thought. Bone is rock, is me. The inferno above. The terrible cracking and we're torn apart. Many splintered fragments of ourselves. Many spinning, cold fragments. Time, no time, one time, the end. This has been The End. Written by Adam M. Booth. Narrated by Shiromi Arserio. Copyright 2014 by Adam Booth.
Production copyright 2014 by Adam M. Booth.